0: Well, hey, welcome to those of you who are joining us this weekend on Northview TV. Uh, We are in the third weekend in an Advent series, and we are in the book of Matthew today. So if you don't have your Bibles, maybe just press pause, uh, grab a Bible, and you can read along with me uh, the first six verses in Matthew chapter two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, over the last three weeks, we have been looking at characters from the Old Testament, looking at the Christmas story through the lens of their lives. And how we often will look back at Old Testament heroes of the faith, if you will, and try to emulate and model their faith, their trust, their obedience, and also try to learn from their mistakes and not repeat them ourselves. And ultimately, each one of these men and women, these heroes of the faith, point us forward to a greater hero, the true and better hero. Jesus, who is the fulfillment of each of these characters as their lives point us forward to his life. Now, I don't know who you would consider your quote unquote heroes. Uh, one of the exercises that I've been privileged to be involved in over the last decade is the assessment of church planters who are intending to go out and plant new churches. And I, I think probably over the years, 150 to 200 couples, so three to 400 individuals, husband and wife teams. And part of the assessment is they do this little presentation where they share a bit of their life with us based on four H's, their heritage, their heroes, their hard times, And their highlights really interesting what you learn about a person in just those four h's but as we lean into that word hero you will know that our world is filled with famous and infamous people the movers and shakers if you will of hollywood politics professional sports they are the household names uh, we even give them nicknames. We don't even have to use their proper name. We know what we're talking about. When, when I took my Canadian citizenship exam, and those of you who've done this will know that it's a random series of questions. It's computer generated. So every test is different. You study the book and you get your particular random questions. The question I had, what I found quite striking, nothing about a political leader, no questions about premiers of the past, but this question. Who is Canada's most famous hockey player known as the Great One? And then a list of multiple choice names. And of course, Wayne Gretzky's name is part of that list. Uh, We give these nicknames to to many, many people. If if I said to some of you who are older, who is the man in black? You might think Johnny Cash. Or who was the king of rock and roll? Uh, Elvis, of course. And as I said... uh, we give them these nicknames. In fact, if I said to you, did you hear what the Donald said this week? You would know that I am not referring to Donald Duck, but I'm referring to the former president of the US. Uh, If I said to you, did you hear what Justin said this week? Those of you over 40 might think of Justin Trudeau. Those of you under 40 are thinking about the Bieber. We admire lots of people but that doesn't make them heroes. We might be curious about famous people, but again, it doesn't make them heroes. And over the years, it was very interesting that never once in all of those presentations did I see the name of a movie star, a musician, or a professional athlete appear on the hero list. Those who qualified as the heroes for these young men and women were other men and women of deep character and substance. Some of them were famous people, uh, men and women from history, names that you would recognize. But many of them were quiet and unassuming people that the rest of us would never know. Many said my grandparents were my heroes. My mother, my father was a hero to me, uh, a school teacher or a coach who took a special interest in me, people who made the world a better place by how they lived their lives. Well, in the Jewish mind... One king stood head and shoulders above all the rest. He would make the top 10 list of Old Testament leaders who changed the world every time. And his name was David, King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, the king by which all other kings were measured. He was called the man after God's own heart. He was promised that he would have a son sitting on an everlasting throne, an eternal kingdom, and that son gets the nickname, Son of David. Now, woven into the Christmas story, you'll see comments and phrases, connections to David. Matthew's version, Matthew chapter 1, opens with a genealogy, and the first words refer to Jesus Christ, the Son of David the son of Abraham. When Gabriel visits Mary in Luke chapter 1, he says to this young woman, And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And in Luke 2, Joseph and Mary are required to return to the city of David, the city of Bethlehem, for a census so that Caesar can tax them. And it just so happens that the time for Jesus' birth arrives while they're in Bethlehem so he can be born in the city of David. And in fact, the overarching theme of the New Testament is that Jesus is the son of David. In fact, it bookends the New Testament. Matthew 1 verse 1 and the End of Revelation 22, almost one of the last verses, 22, 16. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, and it is Jesus speaking. Now just press pause there, and we're going to come back to that thought. But Matthew 2, which we just read, could be called the tale of three kings. There is a king that's standing backstage, if you will. He's in the shadows, he's behind the scenes, and that's King David. And then there's another king very much in the foreground of this birth story, and he is an anti-type to David. He is a king who is demanding center stage, the spotlight, all of the attention. Another king of the Jews, quote-unquote, who is not a man after God's own heart, King Herod. And finally, there is the king who enters this scene in humility. King Jesus, the king that the wise men from the east came to worship. A king with no pomp and circumstance who comes to rule and reign and restore. A humble king. A king who sneaks in under the cover of darkness to change our world. Three kings... But only one who can rule. And so if you take nothing else with you, take this big idea with you and ponder on it. That there can only be one king. There can only be one king by very definition of understanding what a monarchy is. So let's look at the king that's standing in the background first. King David, then King Herod, and then King Jesus. But first this king named David. Now, I already mentioned that David stands head and shoulders above all other kings in Israel's history. Uh, In our vernacular, we might say he's the Abraham Lincoln or the Winston Churchill of our background, the great liberator, a leader that we look back on and are contrasting other leaders to. In David's case, the good kings and the bad kings of Israel were judged by whether or not they lived up to the standard that David had walked in. And in Second Samuel 7, we get God's covenant with David. He has been appointed king and established as king over the kingdom. And it says there, and I pulled out selected verses from 2 Samuel 7. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I will make for you a great name. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers when you die... I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. Your throne will be established forever. Now, there is so much written on the life of David, but Psalm 78 really summarizes his call and his life in three short sentences. When it says, God, he chose David. David his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, and he brought him to shepherd his people. With an upright heart, he shepherded them. Now, if you're listening into this message and you don't know the story of David, if you're not familiar, then buckle up, because we're going to do a flyover at about 100 miles an hour. We first meet David when God has rejected the previous king named Saul. Samuel, who is the last and greatest judge in Israel, is sent to a tiny little town called Bethlehem, a little village of no importance. It would be like being sent to Creston, B.C., or Dawson Creek, or Hundred Mile House, or choose some small town in the middle of nowhere. And he's told, go there, because the new king is in the household of a man named Jesse. So he arrives at Jesse's house. Jesse's wondering, why is the judge coming to my house? Is anything wrong? Do you come in peace? He's like, no, I've just come to sacrifice. Why don't you invite your boys to join us in worship? And as the boys come one by one, Samuel is evaluating them. Now, Eliab is the oldest, and he must have been an impressive specimen. Handsome, tall, maybe he was ripped, who knows? But when Samuel looks at him, it says he looked On Eliab, and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so one by one, Jesse's sons pass before Samuel, and one by one they are rejected. No, not him. No, not him. No, not him. Until finally, Samuel's like, do you got any more? And Jesse's like, well, there's the youngest, but I didn't even think of calling him in. The runt of the litter, he's out taking care of the sheep. And Samuel's like, call him. And he sent and brought him in. 1 Samuel 16. Now he was ruddy and had, a beautiful, had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now, we're on fast forward. We're running through his life. And in the early accounts of David's life, we start to piece together his character, his moral fiber. And the first assignment that David is given is as a minstrel in the king's court. Because a dark spirit, we are told, would come over Saul, a a depressive spirit, and and music would calm him down. And it's like, is there an artist in the house? And somebody says, well, one of the young men I've seen, behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a, a, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Now, that's quite the reference for a young man who is going to play in the king's court. He was a man of reputation already. Now, significant, significant to note how old David is at this point. This is really important. Because David at this point in time would have been 17 or 18 years old, 19 at the very most. And you go, how do you know that? Well, there's a couple hints in our text. If you read further on, you'll see that David is 30 years old when he finally is made king over Judah. And all the events that have to take place between his anointing in Bethlehem until he is officially anointed as king have to take at least 10 or 12 years. But most significantly is this. The next story, his brothers have gone to war and David is not among them. David is left at home with the sheep. And you see, men in Israel, according to the book of Numbers, did not go to war until they had reached the age of 20. So David being left behind tells us that he is not yet 20 years old. And therein lies another significant lesson about godly young leadership. The things that we learn about David's character were written into the fiber of his being in his late teens and his early 20s. It's amazing. Let no man despise thy youth, but show yourself an example of the believers, Paul wrote in the New Testament. Now Samuel 17, the very next story. Saul's armies are in battle against the Philistines, and a giant of a man named Goliath comes up against them, mocking them and tormenting them. Goliath is like nine and a half feet tall, and he mocks their God, and he challenges them to a man-on-man duel. He's like, let's not just fight among all of us. You send one man out to fight me. If I win, then you're going to be our servants. If he wins, then we will serve you. David arrives on the scene as Goliath is mocking the armies and the God of their armies. And he sees the king's troops trembling. And he asks a provocative question. He says, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now put the picture in your head. This is a 17 or 18 year old kid, and he is talking to the seasoned army of Saul. And his brothers, who are part of that army, are ticked off. Go home, David. Go back to the sheep. You don't belong here. Drop off the lunch, which was your duty, and get out of here. They didn't want their kid brother around. You're not even legal fighting age yet. What do you think you're doing? But as you listen to that story in David's words you see it and hear it, that it's not a brash bravado that carries him along, but it is a humble dependence upon the Lord God. In chapter 17, 37, David says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And when he finally confronts Goliath, he says this, You come against me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. All the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. You see this confidence in this young man that the Lord will fight the battle for him. Now, time does not allow us to do a deep dive into David's life. There is so much written. Literally volumes of books and commentaries have been written on David's life. There are over 1,100 references to David in the scriptures. He stands like Mount Everest among the kings of Israel. But as you follow his rise to power, you see him consistently pushing away acclaim and glory, consistently making much of God and little of himself. And although he had been anointed by Samuel as king, he refused to push King Saul out. In fact, the very opposite. He he honored Saul's leadership on every occasion. When Saul offers him his daughter in marriage, and on Saul's behalf, it was a political strategy to keep him close, his response is this, Who am I? Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? And when Saul's jealousy and hatred grew so strong against David that he, he has to spend his life as a fugitive, living in caves and wandering in the desert, and twice Saul is given into David's hands, and he has the opportunity to kill him, And David's men are urging him, this is your chance, get rid of your enemy. And on both occasions, David replies this way, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And even after Saul's death, David was unwilling to speak evil of him. He honors the man, and he honors the men who took Saul's body for burial. He looks for descendants of Saul's household who survived so that he could honor them. The bottom line is this, David, King David, refused to grasp for power. He consistently deflected glory to the Lord. He resolutely humbled himself. And the Lord exalted him as Israel's greatest king. Now, someone out there is thinking, "Ah, yeah, but there's that one dark chapter in David's life. And you're right. David was not a perfect man. And in a time of peace and prosperity, when the nation was doing well, When the Lord had granted him success and he was at ease in his palace, he makes a tragic mistake. He stays at home to enjoy the spoils of success instead of going out to war with the men. And the implication behind this text is that, well, those battles are obviously inconsequential. You don't need me. You can handle this alone. I've fought enough battles. I've got my stripes. You boys go and fight, and I'm going to stay here in the comfort and security of the palace. And in that decision, he spells his demise. Because in the absence of his men, he looks out over the balcony and he sees Bathsheba bathing in her courtyard. His friend Uriah's wife, he calls for her, he takes her to his bed, and she becomes pregnant. He tries to cover it up by quickly calling Uriah home from the battle lines. And when that doesn't work, he makes sure that Uriah is placed on the front line of battle. He is killed, and David takes Bathsheba as his wife. Now, even here in this story, however, we see the humility of David in that when he was confronted with his sin, when the prophet Nathan calls out to him, he does not deflect. He does not deny. He does not defend. He does not blame anyone else. He does not do as our father Adam did. Adam who blamed the woman, Adam who blamed the serpent, Adam who blamed God himself. David owns his sin. I am the man. I've sinned against God and God alone. In Psalm 51, we we read his repentant cry. We see his repentant heart. Have mercy on me, O God. Wash me, cleanse me. I know my sin and it is always before me. Wash me and I'll be whiter as snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore the joy of my salvation. It's why David was called a man after God's own heart. Because a man after God's own heart takes responsibility for his sin. So that's the king standing in the background of Matthew 2. But there is another king that is demanding the spotlight. And Matthew 2 opens with the words that we read earlier, the days of Herod the king. And you should always press pause when you come along a phrase like that and stop to think about the history lesson that it is giving you. Don't miss the impact of those six words because they are loaded with implications. The days of Herod the king. If I were to say to you it was the days of Stephen Harper, It was the days of Justin Trudeau. It was the days of Obama or Trump or Biden. Or I could go back further in time and say it was the days of Napoleon. It was the days of Martin Luther King. It was the days of Martin Luther the Reformer, etc. Or to make it darker yet, you could say the days of Joseph Stalin. The days of Adolf Hitler. Names that cause your blood to run cold. Because King Herod the Great, quote unquote, had a 40 plus year reign of terror. He was the second king that we encounter in our text. And he stayed in power through intimidation, through fear, through murder, through deception. Uh, He was a shrewd political leader. Uh, He did a lot for the nation of Israel. He built up the infrastructure of the nation like no other king before him. Some of his projects still remain to this day. But underneath was a terribly insecure and paranoid man. And we know a lot about this king and his dark family history, both from the scriptures and from secular history. The Herod family dynasty lasted for nearly 150 years. His dad, his kids, his grandkids, and his great-grandkids. There are six men in the New Testament identified as Herod. Four of them play quite significant roles. Herod the Great, that we meet here as the governor of Judah. Uh, in 47 BC, he took that title, and ten years later, he he claimed the title himself: King of the Jews. Now, interesting, upon taking the throne as king of the Jews, he was so paranoid of all of his rivals that he planned a great state banquet, a great state party, a celebration, and he invited the 300 most influential men in the entire kingdom come to the palace for dinner. And as the butlers welcomed them and locked the doors behind them, the horrific plan unfolded that those butlers were hired hitmen who massacred those 300 men that very night. And history tells us that Herod slept well. Like modern-day Saddam Hussein, Herod determined that his two oldest boys were a threat to his kingdom, and so he had them killed. He killed two of his own wives, and one of his, get this, one of his ten mother-in-laws. You heard that correctly. Ten mother-in-laws. His third oldest son, he had put to death just five days before his own death because he was threatened that he might take power. There were 15 children born to him that we are, are known to historians. Obviously, many more. He had 10 wives, but 15 that history books record, and nine of them are in the New Testament. Sons and grandsons, daughters and granddaughters. And the first one we meet is Herod Archelaus. In Matthew 2, Joseph and Mary have escaped to Egypt because Herod is coming after them. And they hear that Herod dies and they're returning, but then they hear that his son, Herod Archelaus, is reigning in his place. So they don't return to Bethlehem. They return to Nazareth. Now, he reigns only two years, and then he is banished. The third Herod we meet is Herod Antipas, And he is the best known of all of these Herods. He was the the Herod responsible for the death of John the Baptist, which we read in Mark 6. He was the same Herod who, 30 years after this story, oversaw the trial of Jesus before Pilate. He hated John the Baptist. He hated him because John the Baptist had the audacity to call him out publicly on his adultery. John spoke to power. You see, Antipas had married his niece, Herodias, the first woman in the family tree that we meet. Herodias had a reputation for her beauty, and he fell for her, and they actually eloped, history tells us. Now, in today's laws, a marriage between these two wouldn't be allowed because they were too closely related. But it was not uncommon in the first century for a a step-uncle to marry a a niece. And the issue John the Baptist had with this marriage was not the fact that he was marrying his niece, but that both of them were already married, was his point. Herodias had married another one of her uncles uh, a brother named Antipas, Philip the Tetrarch. And that little detail didn't seem to bother either one of them. Okay, keep moving. Acts chapter 12, we meet another Herod. And he is the grandson of Herod the Great. He is called Agrippa the First. And in Acts 12, he leads the persecution against the early church. He has James put to death and Peter thrown in prison. And then Agrippa the Second, we meet As the last of the Herod dynasty, in somewhere between 50 and 60 AD, we meet him on his visit to his sister's house in Acts 24 and 25, when Paul is giving his defense of his ministry. Now, I know this is a lot of detail, but I'm throwing all these names in here for a reason. You add finally into the mix the two sisters, Drusilla and Bernice. Bernice has at least five husbands, Bernice married for power and for money. Uh, We might today call her a gold digger. She would see a better offer, chuck one husband, marry the next. And she didn't waste any time using her beauty and her family name to climb the political and the economic ladder. She was known a reputation of being seductive and sensual and charming. Drusilla, her sister, was not much better. She was already married herself when her beauty caught the eye of Felix. She was a Jew, he was a Gentile. Their marriage would have violated Jewish law, but she didn't care. She left her first husband, and she bed-hopped her way up the monarchy. And so the old saying that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree is certainly true. These two women... Drusilla and her sister Bernice were two of the most corrupt women in the New Testament, granddaughters of the dark king of Matthew 2. Okay, that's a long rabbit trail. And some of you are going, so what? Who cares? Why bother with all of these names, these descendants of Herod the Great? Well, it is for this reason. I've taken this time to portray this family Because it's critical in understanding Matthew 2. This messed up family dynasty descends from Herod the Great, who is in our story in Matthew 2. And by the time we meet him, he has been in power for nearly 40 years. He is in his 70s. His health is declining. He wouldn't reign that much longer. And there hadn't been a significant uprising for many, many years, most likely because he had succeeded in squashing everyone into submission. And then these guys from the east arrive, these magi, these wise guys, and the status quo gets rocked. They themselves could have been a threat to King Herod. They were wise. Some think they were kings. And he receives them, of course, because these foreign dignitaries, it would be customary for him to receive them, but he was not anticipated or prepared for their coming. And so knowing Herod's paranoia and his insecurity, his political antenna must have been up. Who were these men? Were they here just as an envoy for some great arch rival? And Herod was troubled, the text tells us, and all Jerusalem with him. And the dialogue is almost humorous if you put yourself into it, that these wise men are like, hey, we're here to see the king of the Jews. They're talking to the rightly appointed political leader, the one appointed by Caesar to rule over Judea, the one declared to be the king of the Jews, Herod the Great, ruler for 40 plus years. And then they're like, no, not you. We're looking for another one. You're not the one we came to see. There's another king in town and you're soon going to be out of job was the implication. Fundamental principle buried behind this story that is so basic that there can only be one king. And either you're the one in charge or someone else is. There there can't be two kings. Either you are the king, you're in control, you call the shots, you lead the way, you make the decisions, or someone else does. And Herod does the only reasonable thing that he could do. He moves to wipe out this other king. I'm just going to pause there and throw a comment out to you. That I think there's a little King Herod in every one of us. There's a little King Herod on the throne of our lives asking the question, who's going to rule your life? Who's going to sit on the throne of your life? Who's going to call the shots in my life? Who's in charge around here? There can't be two kings. Either we will kill the Herod in us, or we'll kill the Jesus in us. So let's talk about the third king. There was King David, there was King Herod. And the third king in our text is the true and better king, King Jesus. The king who came to heal and restore, but also to rule and reign. The king who comes in humility, who descended from greatness, who laid aside his riches and his power. Have you ever considered why the Christmas story in Luke 2, which is the best-known story, is so widely accepted? And I think in part, it is most popular because Luke 2 focuses on the baby Jesus. And babies are cute and cuddly and warm and innocent. Matthew 2, on the other hand, is about a reigning monarch, and that's quite the contrast to Luke 2. You see, Luke has some implications, for sure. Uh, It says, unto you a Savior is born. And there are people in our world that will struggle with that phrase, because who needs a Savior? Only dying people, drowning people. If you're inside a house that's burning down, you might need a Savior. But I'm doing quite well on my own, thank you very much, don't need a Savior. But Matthew 2 raises the confrontational bar another notch. There is only one king. And Herod knew immediately who these men were looking for. The questions he asks tell us that. We're here to worship the king of the Jews. And in, in, in Matthew 2 verse 4, Herod asked this question, where is the Christ to be born? You see, Herod knew inherently if they were there to worship the king of the Jews, they were there to worship the Christ. He knew the prophecies. He had married into Judaism and he knew enough of the Old Testament to know that there was a coming king, the son of David predicted, known as the Christ. We are looking for the prophesied son of David, is what the Magi were saying. Now that word Christ comes from the Greek form of the Hebrew word for Messiah, an anointed one, a coming one. The Old Testament pointed to a deliverer who was promised the anointed Messiah, the Christ. And Herod's wise men remind him that he was promised as a ruler and a king. If you look at Matthew 2 verse 6 that we read earlier, you Bethlehem, you're going to have a king arise from you. It's an echo back to Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, and a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. The government. In other words, the son of David would come to rule and reign as king. You know, As Psalm 72, verse 8 says, may he have dominion. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Zechariah picked up on that phrase. And he said this, Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And then listen to this phrase taken from Psalm 72. His rule, his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. I don't know if you caught that phrase and if you even know this, but when Canada was founded, our nation, The framers of confederation chose Psalm 72 verse 8 as our national motto. It remains to this day our national motto that he would have dominion from sea to sea, referring to King Jesus, that his rule and reign, the one who would come riding humble on a donkey, who would have dominion over our nation. For the most part as Canadians, I think we've we've walked away from that vision. We're happy to live as the kings and queens of our own little empire. You see, it wasn't just an infant that the Magi came to worship. It was a king, a ruler. And Herod knew that if he did not destroy this rival king, that his dynasty would come crashing down. Well, let's ask ourselves, Do you think the average Canadian really wants a king? Do I want a king? Do you want a king? A king who will have dominion? A king who will rule and reign? Either we will bow the knee like the wise men bowed in worship, or we will seek to destroy him like the dark king Herod did. And as followers of Jesus, we hold on to the purpose for which Jesus came. He came to rule and reign. We we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that theme can ignite a fiery debate. Because the idea that we don't need a king, I don't need a king, we don't want a king, we don't have a king, is a classic statement of our independent, individualistic culture, where every man and woman is an island unto themselves. I am not accountable to anybody. No one can tell me how to live my life, not the government, not the church, not even God himself. I have no king. I want no king. And as followers of Jesus, our lives are to declare there is a new king in town. There's a new king on the throne, and to him every knee will bow. And a watching world has the right to ask us, well, how's that working for you? What does a life look like lived under the rule and reign of King Jesus? And I honestly believe that there's a little King Herod in each of us. The desire to have our own way and to call our own shots. I don't mind Jesus as my savior, because I know I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness and I'm thankful for the gift of salvation that comes by faith and faith alone. That's not the tough sell. I I don't mind that half of the equation, Savior and Lord. Do we want him as our Savior, but wish that he would stay out of the rest of our lives? Don't talk to me about moral purity. Those are old-fashioned values. Don't bring up sexual identity, sexual expression. Honesty, integrity, character. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. Adultery, premarital sex, pornography. Stop talking about those things. Money, greed, possessions, materialism, consumerism. All the church talks about is money, money, money. I think the church should stay out of all those issues. And yet Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. Or in Matthew 16, he said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So I put a single thought in front of you, like about an hour ago. There can only be one king. And there's a king in the backdrop of our story named David. There's another king pushing his way into center stage named Herod. And finally, there's this third king who comes humbly, the true and better king, the king who lays down his glory in order to relate to us, the king who was rich, who became poor so that we could become rich, the king who gives away his glory, who descends into his greatness so that we could be exalted, the humble king who calls us to kneel at His feet. He's the King worth following. He's the King we need. And either we'll kill the Herod in us, or we'll kill the Jesus in us. Which will it be? Let me pray for you. Father, in this Christmas season, uh, this chunk of the text is one that we don't focus on an awful lot. Uh, Herod, the horrible king, Uh, this horrendous story that we see of how he did everything he could to destroy King Jesus. He simply did not want another king in his kingdom. And yet, Lord, how true that can be for each one of us as we recognize looking at that person in the mirror, that deep within each one of us, there is this little King Herod that desperately wants the throne of our lives. And so, Father, I pray for the men and women, the boys and girls who are listening to this message. I pray, Lord, that you would seal in their heart of hearts that King Jesus, the humble King, is the one worth giving their lives to, surrendering to in his rule and reign, and that this Christmas season we would know him as the true and better King, the Son of David, the one who came to do what David could not do for us, the one who laid his life down, that we may be made right with God the Father. May this be true for us this Christmas. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.